Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Living History. We are continuing the World War II theme this week with a number of things we've done. So we've done the Cara Breakout, we've done World War II tank crews, we've done a whole heap of World War II episodes recently and I'm really enjoying it. And I know you are as well. We've had great feedback. So please keep sending those in and send in your comments and suggestions uh, for the show as well, because some of our favorite episodes have come from your suggestions. So please keep sending those in. Uh, but to, today, we're still in World War II. We're still in the Pacific. An interesting chapter. I'm really looking forward to exploring this because I think it's slightly controversial. It's not an area that I think we've spent a lot of time even thinking about, which is that period after the Second World War, war, uh, war crime trials you know, the Japanese put on uh, put on trial for, for atrocities they committed in the Pacific. It's just a really interesting story, and I'm looking forward to it, especially off the prisoner of war stories we've been telling about the Cara breakout. So we're really, I'm really looking forward to this. We're talking about a new book which is out at the moment, which is called The Witness, uh, all about this topic, and it's written by a man by the name of Tom Gilling, who joins us now. Tom, thanks very much for joining us on Living History. Thanks, for, Matt. Great to be here. It's it's an interesting topic, mate. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the book, and an interesting chapter of history. I think to start, can you give us a little bit of context for, for, for how these prisoners came to be in Borneo in the first place and just the historic background to, to what was happening in this area? Well, like a lot of uh, Australian soldiers, they were uh, a lot came back from the Middle East and uh, they then came back to Australia and were going up to Singapore and they arrived in Singapore just in time for Singapore to fall to the Japanese. So many Australian soldiers uh, ended up spending most of their war as prisoners of war. And um, those who were very unfortunate ended up at um, Sandakan, which was a lot worse. We tend to think of Changi as, as being a, a hellhole. Well, uh, some people describe Changi as a holiday compared to uh, what, they then, what they met at uh, Sandakan in Borneo. We did an episode on the Sandakan death marches a year or two ago. So if, if you want to go back and check that one out, please do, anyone listening to this podcast. But just give us some sort of idea, Tom, for what was going on in these camps because the, the barbarity of the Japanese is very well known. But give us some specific examples of what life was like for the, the men that found themselves prisoners of the Japanese. Well, at Sandakan, they were taken there to build an airfield. The Japanese wanted to build an airfield there. Um, and uh, so they. Uh, brought over a couple of thousand British and Australian uh, POWs. Um, 
it was it was brutal physical labor um they did have some machinery there but that tended to be quickly sabotaged by the australians um some thought that was a bad move because it just meant the work was harder but others felt that sabotage was was con- contributing to the war effort um but uh, the the work became steadily the workload became steadily greater as they fell more and more behind schedule and so consequently the the brutality from the guards in demanding more and more work demanding the the sick come out of hospital to work demanding that those who were at the airfield were working from pretty much from from dawn until dusk uh, and those who didn't were were beaten and subjected to pre- pretty grotesque punishments who were these japanese that were guarding the camps uh, the reason i ask specifically is we've done a couple of couple of podcasts lately off the back of my new book about the Kara breakout and so we spent a lot of time talking about japanese prisoners in captivity and the australians who were tasked with guarding them w- what was the situation like in reverse who were the who were the men that were guarding australian and british prisoners and where were they drawn from in the japanese forces it's a very that's a very good question Matt. um the 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 guards who were there early on were often soldiers themselves they had been uh, a lot of them had been frontline soldiers um, they were there, I suppose, for various reasons. Maybe they'd been um, wounded, but they, they understood what it was like to be a soldier, and they were generally seen to be less brutal. But um, as, as as the schedule became more hectic to try and build this airfield, Hoshijima, who was the commandant, started um, bringing in other uh, guards. They were from um, from Taiwan. They were from other places. They were Koreans, um, and they were they were younger. They hadn't been soldiers. They there was no kind of common feeling with the experiences of a of a an enemy soldier, and um, they were they were thugs. They and they they inflicted the kind of violence that um, that Hoshijima felt he needed in order to um, get the Australians to build his airfield. I've heard some veterans say that they found that the Korean guards in particular were pretty tough on the prisoners. Is that, uh, was that your, uh, your experience with the research that you've done? That's certainly what a lot of the Australians felt, yeah. It was hard to tell exactly where they were from because uh, I quote a few examples of uh, prisoners asking where they were from. And often the guards would say they were for, they'd name a Japanese city um, but those who learned to speak a bit of Japanese, those prisoners who learned to speak a bit of Japanese, could pick up here and there that they they weren't actually from, they weren't Japanese, they were they were Koreans, and the Koreans were they were a subject people, they were colonised by Japan, they were brutalised by the Japanese um, throughout their time in the army. They probably thought they were fighting for the empire. They were actually. Um, being treated as the lowest of the low in the Japanese army, and and they took it out on those who they had power over, and that um, was the prisoners. It's probably one of the great ironies, isn't it, that the, the the people themselves that were being subjugated by the Japanese were some of the most violent towards the their, their prisoners. It's probably a subject for a whole other podcast, the psychology of what was going on. But you touched on it there. Is is that what was happening because they were an oppressed people? Do you think they? took the opportunity to uh to to take it out on the only people they had power over i i think there's no doubt whatsoever about that in fact some of the australians themselves saw the way the koreans were treated by the japanese and um and they were on some occasions they were even sympathetic towards the kind of bastardry that the um, that they were suffering but of course 
the prisoners themselves then um, then got it back from the Koreans. So um, yes, there's there's no doubt that they they the Korean the life of a Korean soldier in the Japanese army was was pretty grim. Tell us about the specific um, life for the prisoners in these camps. What what were they fed? Where were they sleeping? Did they have access to medical treatment? Um, just give us an overview of what life was like in the camps. In theory, they had access to medical treatment. They certainly had their own medical officers there, but um, they actually got access to very little medical treatment. Um, the, the, the lot of the Japanese at Sandakan was, was not that great either, and so they were short of food um, towards the end. They were short of medicines towards the end. They were suffering the same kind of endemic diseases, malaria, dysentery, and so forth, not nearly as badly as the prisoners. But... Um, it gave them a reason to be taking what food was available, stealing what drugs were available. The prisoners were supposed to receive Red Cross parcels, but um, Stipowicz uh, gave uh, a lot of evidence at the war crimes trials that he'd seen Japanese guards commanded by their officers opening Red Cross parcels of, of uh, medicines. So um, uh, food was very short for, for prisoners, much worse than, than it was for the guards, although towards the end of the war, even the guards were going hungry. But um, certainly they were they were getting a very poor diet, which gradually got worse in the course of the war. They got very little medical treatment and they were living, obviously, in an environment that was was full of um, diseases which were which could kill malaria being being foremost. How um, how well constructed was the camp? Because obviously, unlike the Australian prisoner of war camps for Japanese prisoners, which were built in Australia. These camps were built not far from what was effectively the front line. So I can imagine they were fairly rudimentary in terms of the facilities and the and the living conditions for the prisoners. Living conditions were, were pretty bad. They Some of these places had been, they were repurposed because um, they were sometimes had been internment camps for Japanese prisoners or Japanese civilians and then when the Japanese invaded in, uh, in 1940, from 1942 onwards, they then were repurposed and the Europeans got put inside them. Um, so they were often very um, shabbily built. Um, certainly there was, uh, they were built in often deplorable places. They were driven, built down near swamps where, where malaria was at its worst. Um, but security was uh, was was reasonably tight. I mean, not many people escaped, partly because it was hard to get out of the camps, but more because they were likely to be betrayed by the locals because the Japanese were were um, brutal colonizers of the civilian population as well. What was the Australian attitude to being a prisoner at this stage of the war? I, I understand they're all a mixed bag and everyone's going to have different attitudes, but in general, were the Australians always looking for opportunities to escape and cause trouble or were they fairly resigned to their fate and just trying to see out the war as best they could? My impression has been um, from this book and from the last book I wrote, which was uh, about uh, some prisoners who escaped from Sandakan, was that there were some who were, were bent on escaping from the moment they were forced to surrender um, and there were others who were were going to just try and make the best of it knowing that they weren't going to get out but but hoping they might hoping possibly that the uh, uh, um, rescue operation might be mounted towards the end of the war um, it was a it was very dangerous to escape that your chances of of getting out of the camp well some some did manage to get out of the camp 
but um, most were caught and shot um, pretty soon afterwards because they were handed over by the um, by the locals. Yeah, pretty uh, inhospitable environment as well to be roaming around without uh, adequate food or water. Um, let's talk a bit about the Death March because the most famous and the most brutal and tragic aspect of the Sandakan camps was the, the Death March. Just give us an overview of what that entailed. Well, there are actually three Death Marches. There was um, one in January 1945, one in uh, May, and, uh, and then one just of the, the last few survivors um, a few weeks after that. Um, the idea really was that uh, the Japanese felt that at some point Sandakan was going to be invaded. The Americans and, and the Australians were, were moving, island hopping through the Pacific and gradually taking back what the Japanese had conquered earlier in the war. And they thought that uh, they were going, that there was going to be a landing at Sandakan. And so they started to move uh, prisoners out to Ranau, which was about, about 250 kilometres out into the jungle. Um, it was a very, very tough march. The jungle itself was bad enough, but it was, Ranau was quite high. So there was a lot of climbing involved. Um, it, it was a march. I mean, it was, it was called a death march because many prisoners were too sick to even make the, the, uh, complete the march under their own steam anyway. Um, but many more were shot. Those who, who dragged their feet were, were shot by guards. Um, so it was, um, a few hundred did arrive at Renau, but the conditions there were even worse than they had been at Sandakan. Several hundred were left behind at Sandakan. Those who couldn't even pretend to be able to walk were, were pretty much left on stretchers out in the open. Uh, the camp was burned um, and, and they all died. But um, the six who did survive the death marches um, were, were some escaped en route and one or two escaped after they'd got to Renau. It's extraordinary, isn't it? The numbers of the thousands of men who were who were sent on these marches that we had six survivors. Just just a you know a brutal footnote to the to the time that these Australians and British troops had spent in captivity. Well, that's right. The, I mean, the the mortality rate for of the two and a half thousand or so uh, prisoners who were at Sandakan, six survived. The mortality rate was was ninety nine point seven five percent. Just absolutely horrific. Far more, think, obviously, than, than for, for Australians who were prisoners of the Germans in Europe. It's just a, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a horrific part of the World War II story, and I, I don't think anyone who, who hears about this can have anything except absolute horror about it. But with your book, The Witness, you've found a, an interesting new approach to telling this story and about, uh, you know, Bill Stipowicz, a specific man, one of the six survivors, I'm not even going to spoil it. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to leave it to you to give us an overview of, of Bill Stipowicz and why his story is worth telling. Well, I was I was interested in in Bill Stipowicz because I noticed that his name came up in in most in all of the books that have been written about Sandakan. Um, he was never very favourably spoken of, and yet he was a witness to everything. He was he was when he arrived at the camp, he managed to talk the Japanese into uh, having a technical party. Of which he would be the leader. Now he was he was a handyman, engineer, carpenter. Um, the technical party did a bit of maintenance around the camp, did some odd jobs around the camp, did some favours for guards, fixing watches, mending buckets, that sort of thing. But what it meant was that um, Stipowicz could and his technical party could avoid the heavy labour of building the airfield 
Um, they were fed a little bit better than, than the other prisoners were. And they also managed to evade that um, casual violence that all the prisoners who were at the airfield suffered. So he got himself on a, on a pretty good wicket. Um, and, yeah, and it gave him the run of the camp. So he was able to see everything and he remembered everything. He had an extraordinary memory, extraordinary recall of detail. And uh, what that meant is, uh, after the war, he's he is an absolute key um, documenter of of what happened. Like all, like the other five uh, survivors, he gave statements after the war to Australian war crimes investigators. But where they might give two or three pages, Stipowicz would be talking on for. 10, 15, 20 pages at a time. And so he's an invaluable witness to what happened. Um, and uh, as I said, he, he featured in all those books, but there was something dark about Stipplewich. No one spoke well of him. A lot of them actively disliked or even hated him. And in fact, one of the six who escaped, Bill Moxham, when he heard that Bill Stipplewich had survived, he said uh, to his colleagues, he said, that bastard's still alive. I'm going to kill him with my bare hands. Now, clearly, here was a figure um, who was going to be interesting to pursue in the archives. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A couple, I've got so many questions about it. But firstly, um, how did he, how did Stipowicz himself survive? How was he one of the six? He was the last one to survive. He, he left it till very near the end. So he'd, he'd survived the march to Renau. Um, those who had, who had got to Renau were dying like flies because the, the conditions up there were so appalling. There was virtually no food for anyone and they weren't given any anyway by the Japanese who knew they were going to die. Um, so Stipowicz then heard from a guard. He learned a bit of Japanese, so he was able to communicate with the with the guards at Sandakan and then up at Ranau. And a guard tipped him off, who, who he'd got on quite well with, said, there's going to be a massacre, everyone's going to be killed. And that was when Stipowicz decided that it was time to go. He went, he found one other partner to go with him. He wanted to go with someone, but um, pretty much everyone else was either incapable or one or two of the officers were unwilling to leave. But he found one other prisoner who was willing to go with him, and they slipped out just a matter of days before the last surviving prisoners at Renau were all massacred. Just horrific. Um, I, I should ask, what rank was Stipowicz? He was a warrant officer. Okay. Um, and why, I mean, given that he'd been through this ordeal alongside all the Australians and was one of the handful of survivors, 
and had been a witness and then obviously spoke in the trials about the atrocities committed by the Japanese. Why was he so disliked by his fellow Australians? He was accused of being a collaborator. So a collaborator, the, the term white Jap crops up in um, some of the transcripts of, of interviews in the radio interviews in the 1980s when prisoners started speaking out for the first time, really, to um, and, and the Australian public began to, to be interested in, in stories which hadn't really been told before then. Um, and so he was accused of being a collaborator. Now, my feeling is... He, he was a cooperator. I don't. I think a collaborator it depends how you define it. But I, 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 it's hard to find evidence of him actively working against prisoners, which I think you'd have to say would be a, a requirement if you were going to accuse someone of being a, a collaborator. But there's no doubt that he um, he made himself indispensable to the Japanese. He did favors. He did things which many other prisoners would refuse to do. To them, the Japanese were the enemy. Whatever they told you to do, you didn't do it. Whatever work they asked you to do, you sabotaged it. Um, Stipowicz had a different view. He, As I said, he, he learned a bit of Japanese. I think he thought that by communicating, by cooperating to an extent, uh, you could achieve some kind of resistance that way, which, was, which you might not achieve by just flat-out hostility. So... For example, he was—he didn't have any role in building a, a the secret wireless that they had in the camp, but it was given to him to to hide, and he looked after it. And when the the Japanese came looking for it, he managed to hide it somewhere else. He he was part of a smuggling ring. He was an important part of a smuggle of a of a committee that organised smuggling of food into the camp, medicines into the camp for the um, for the sick prisoners in the hospital. There are plenty of examples of, of things that Stipowicz actually did for the prisoners, um, but I think many just um, drew the line at the kind of cooperation they saw from him. They also resented the fact that he was better fed. He was much fitter than they were towards the end of the towards the end of the march. He was much more capable of making the march because he hadn't got as badly sick as them. He'd avoided the violence. He didn't have the ulcers from from injuries. And he was better fed. So all of those things, if you add those up, you can see why the charge of collaborator was made. But uh, that, to me, seems seems a bit more than merited. I haven't seen evidence, um, haven't seen proof that he actively collaborated with the Japanese, but he certainly co cooperated when many thought that was beyond the pale. Did you find evidence of what uh, his comrades thought of him in the army before he was taken prisoner? I didn't know, but I, I, I tracked down in, in his war records, I found an interesting case from 1941 where he had just joined the army. He was up in Queensland. So this was before the Australians had been sent up to Singapore to fight the Japanese. And he was involved in this curious incident where some army beds were stolen and three private soldiers um, accused him of having of him being part of the of, of, a, of a prank where they stole the uh, stole the beds he was he was court-martialed but before the court-martial happened those three private soldiers went into the officer and they withdrew all their comments about having criticized um, Stipowicz. they withdrew their allegations against him 
Now, I thought that was very interesting. There's Again, there was no evidence that he had actively pressured them, but it was pretty clear that he had, that he had persuaded them in some way to, um, to, to retract those allegations against him. So there's very little about Stipowicz's army history before, the, before he became a prisoner, but there were just one or two incidents like that which make you wonder about what kind of power he had over uh, other soldiers and and what he might have been up to. Maybe he was a he was a chancer, um, and uh, but you know he covered his back. How did you come across the story of Stipowicz and what uh, what uh, inspired you to write uh, this book about him? Well, as I said, when I heard that other of there are only six survivors of two and a half thousand, and one of those wanted to kill um, Stipowicz and several of the others made it sound like they wouldn't have been averse to that result either. Um, he was obviously going to be a very interesting character, a, an ambiguous, a challenging kind of character to explore because he goes against that um, stereotype of, um, of, of the heroic prisoner or the, or, or the sacrificial prisoner. Um, there's a lot about him because he gave such detailed statements after the war. So you can you can find you can pretty much follow um, Stipowicz's wartime experience through these detailed statements that he gave um, in his own voice after the war. He was also brought in. He was he was viewed by the Australians after the war as such an authority on what happened that when the Japanese guards were interrogated, and these statements are in the War Memorial, you can find all these interrogation statements at the bottom. It says, um, in many cases, dozens of cases, it says, comment by Warrant Officer Stipowicz. And he would then say, this guard was okay. He, he never beat except under orders. Or this guard was sometimes kind to prisoners. Or this guard was one of the most, one of the cruelest who was at the camp. And those comments by Stipowicz um, had a big effect on, on the fate of those uh, Japanese guards when they came to be prosecuted. How important was the evidence from Stipowicz personally in the in those uh, war crimes trials? I think it was um, I think it was central actually in the in the most important case, which was the case of um, Captain Hoshijima, who was the uh, commandant at Sandakan. He was prosecuted by Athol Moffat, Captain Athol Moffat, as he then was. He became a Supreme Court judge, um, ran a royal commission into organised crime in New South Wales. Athol Moffat thought that um, Stipowicz was the bee's knees. He'd got Stipowicz's um, paper statements and he'd got written statements from the other prisoners, but he still felt that there, there, were, there was room there for Hoshijima to escape. Um, but a couple of days before the trial started, Stipowicz, who was the only one fit enough to come and give evidence in person, arrived, Athol Moffat met him, and Athol's diary is at the War Memorial, and um, and you can you can basically see him rubbing his hands. He, he thinks now I've got him. He said Stipowicz, he's um, he's a bit uh, he's a bit rough and ready, but he's um, he's a he's a true Aussie, and uh, he saw everything, he remembered everything, and I I think we've um, we've got this we've got Hoshijima now. But now that I've got Stipowicz, I'm confident that we're going to get the result. And what did happen with Hoshijima? Hoshijima was hanged, so Stipowicz gave the sort of evidence that Stipowicz gave against Hoshijima. Hoshijima said, basically, they were all starving because um, I wasn't getting enough food into the camp to be able to feed them. 
and I wasn't getting medicines and hence my soldiers were getting sick as well. But um, Moffat was able to point out that uh, half a dozen Japanese soldiers died of sickness in, in Sandakan, but hundreds of Australians died of, san- of uh, sickness, whereas Hoshijima was claiming that the treatment was the same. But uh, Stipowicz, um trotted into the witness box and was able to give chapter and verse on specific acts like he had seen prisoners sent to the cage, which was a, a bamboo cage where prisoners were left for days, sometimes for weeks, um, very little food and water, no protection from the elements. He was able to say, I saw these prisoners go in the cage and I saw uh, Hoshijima watching them. Um, he claimed he'd um, seen violence by Hoshijima personally. And also he had found bags of rice. He'd seen 300 bags of rice under Hoshijima's, under the commandant's hut, um, whilst the Australian prisoners were starving to death for, for lack of rice. He'd also observed Japanese guards opening Red Cross medical parcels that were meant for the prisoners. All of those things, the cage, the deliberate starvation when there was rice available, all of those counted very heavily against Hoshijima. And in the end, um, there was nothing he could say to counter the evidence that um, Stipowicz was able to present. Tom, I'm in two minds about uh, Stipowicz at this point. On one hand, we have he, he seems, from your description, to be one of those guys that would be disliked in the army, that in this environment he'd do what he it took to survive, he, you know, he'd cooperate with the Japanese when required, you know, a little bit every man for himself. But at the same time, as you say, he still was hiding the radio. He was assisting where he could, and his evidence was instrumental in bringing these men to justice. So let's just lay it on the line. How should we remember him eighty years after the fact? I think I think it's it's hard to answer that question without without actually asking another question, which was how would you survive? How would anyone survive in that camp under those conditions with um, with that amount of violence? Um, lack of food, um, sickness, how would you survive? Um, I don't think that Stipowicz was alone in putting his own survival ahead of every other issue that he came across. I think many felt like that. Um, but Stipowicz was, was an unusually capable man. He was lucky as well. I mean, his, um, he, he didn't get seriously ill. He didn't suffer the kind of injury that might have led to a tropical ulcer, that might have led to having a leg amputated, which might have meant that he couldn't he couldn't complete the march. He was undoubtedly lucky, although I spoke to his um, great-nephew, Ben, in Canberra, who had one or two stories that I, I hadn't read in the archives at all. Like, for example, he said that whenever it rained, Stipowicz used to take all his clothes off and wash himself in the rain with gravel while he was at the camp. Now... That seems um, a crazy kind of behaviour, but it would have kept him clean. It was, you know, dirt was 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 a was a killer in a camp like that when there was so so much disease around. And if just that one thing that he made sure his body was as clean as he could make it for the time he was there, that said something about him making his own luck. So he was he was definitely there was an element of luck. But I think that question of um, he did what he he did what he needed to to survive. Many others did what they needed to in the hope of surviving. Um, he pushed the line more than most. You're quite right. There's no question that when you read about his behaviour, many would have thought that it was collaborating. Um, 
and many would have seen his selfishness as i mean he's against the the, the archetype of of someone like um weary dunlop so the story of weary dunlop is a, is a man who was brave stood up to the japanese um a, a heroic doctor who who put his own life at risk in order to save the lives of of the sick men he was looking after but conditions weren't as bad for weary dunlop um, in in Changi and elsewhere, as they were at Sandakan, so it's possible that Dunlop, all the other medical officers at Sandakan died. Perhaps someone like Wei Dunlop might have might have died as well. Um, it was an exceptional character who survived those kind of conditions, and all of the six who did survive were scallywags in in different ways. They they were stealers of food. One of them escaped. Um, at the end, he was. Um, they went to talk to one of the medical officers um, and asked him if he was if he would go. And he said, I, "I don't think I'm up to it." And the reason he wasn't up to it was because one of those six had stolen his boots just before. So even if he wanted to go on the march, he would have been unable to. So all of those six, you know, they all represented in some way people who were who were prepared to do things that the rest of that two and a half thousand might not have been willing to do. And um, they survived partly through luck, but partly because they were so determined and they, and they were, you know, they were, they were rat bags. They were, they were, they were not following the rules. They were slipping out at night and, and getting extra food. Um, I think that's what it took to survive those conditions. I know through my own work, Tom, that when you research these characters, when you spend enough time in the archives and reading about them and reading about them in their own words, you start to form an opinion and a bond with them. How do you feel now about Stipowicz after all these years? Is he someone you like? Is he someone you respect? Do you have sympathy for him? How do you feel about him having written this book? Well, I think um, I think it's important to try and look at the whole story of Stipowicz. And, and so a lot of what he did while he was at the camp was, was I think, uh, was, was criticised, made him deeply disliked. But after the war, he, he was, as you've said, he was an invaluable witness at the war crimes trials. So he was instrumental in, in bringing a lot of those um, guards to justice. Several of them were hanged. But there was another task he performed in the years after the war, which was many hundreds of, of prisoners of Australian and British prisoners had died on those death marches and no one knew where they were buried. Some of them had died of sickness. Some of them had been shot or bayoneted by the guards and their bodies were just left by the path or they were, or they were thrown into the jungle. Now, no one knew where they were. Stipowicz made it a point after he survived to find the bodies of his comrades from the, from the, the POW camp. And he worked I think tirelessly with the Wargraves unit, searching, researching areas that he considered that had not been satisfactorily researched. Um, and he found himself, um, he was responsible for finding hundreds of bodies that would not have been found. Now, there were families back home in Australia wondering what had happened to their fathers, their sons, their husbands. The Australian government wasn't telling them very much because... Um, the Australian government was a bit ashamed of what had happened at Sandakan, that they'd rescue might have been possible, but nothing was done to save those two and a half thousand men. The Australian government was was not and the Australian army was not keen on on telling the story of Sandakan after the war. So a lot of families would have known very little 
uh, if it hadn't been for Stipowicz's efforts to to find their bodies and make sure they were um, properly buried. Well, he sounds like a complicated character in a in a complicated situation. Um, I really enjoyed using his story to 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 paint a new picture of of Sandican and life for those POWs. It's a really fascinating read. The book is called The Witness. It is available now uh, across Australia, and I, I thoroughly recommend it. Just a really great read. Um, Tom, thanks so much for coming on the show and telling us all about it. Thanks, Matt. I really enjoyed coming. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.